we have to be open to opportunities. We have to see where we, each of us individually, can be of use. Every family is its own terrain. We need to learn and we need to figure out the path to love. It drives wives wicked. It makes such a golden brown pie. It must be lots of fun to be a mother. I've got something to apologize for. I wore my good suit because it was plain and neat. Afraid of not knowing what is proper. This yellow fluffo is such a short shortening. Hi, I'm Susan Osman, and this is Been There, Done That, a show about women who are shaping our world. Experienced, smart, versatile women who are redefining what it means to be a woman in the workplace today. You know I can't work without a good breakfast. All right, Claire, stop typing, please. All right, Claire, stop typing, please. Jane Iser is a book editor, mother of two grown sons, grandmother and author of multiple books, including Unconditional Love, A Guide to Navigating the Joys and Challenges of Being a Grandparent Today and Walking on Eggshells. Jane, lovely to have you on the programme. Thank you. Now, I, I want to talk about how a cough could have changed your personal history. And that if your mother had coughed, we wouldn't be sitting here today. Can you, can you explain oh, more? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, it's 1903. It's Ellis Island. Immigrants are flooding into this country. My mother is a year old in her mother's arms. When you get to the desk at Ellis Island, and Fiorello LaGuardia was one of the people who was there. He, he, he moonlighted, and that's why he knew so many languages. When you get to the desk, they check you for your health, and if a child coughs, they get sent off to another place to get a medical uh, checkup, and they may be sent back to Europe. So, yes. So thank goodness she didn't cough. Thank goodness she didn't <laughs> cough. Now, you, you followed the cycle of family through your work. Tell us a little bit about that. I was a book editor for most of my life, and my kids were, had a working mother. And uh, in, the, in, the, in the 60s, it was not common to have a working mother. Um, and, and we raised our children with Dr. Spock. We were not authoritarian. When the kids grew up, they stopped answering my phone calls. And it was just terrible. They were in their 20s. I had raised them to be independent. I had raised them to have a full life. But they weren't calling back. And they really, re I was moving to the fringe of their life. And I couldn't understand it. My friends couldn't understand it. We talked about it at every lunch. And very often we'd hug at the end of lunch. And my friend would say, I thought I was the only person who was experiencing this. As an editor... I knew that if everybody had this experience and everybody thought they were the only one, there was a book. So I tried to get many psychology authors of mine to write the book, but they weren't in that spot. So when I was sick of corporate life, I threw over the traces. I had taught many people to write books. I figured I could do the same. And that's how I came to write the book about grown children. Each of my books, uh, the first book is How to Deal with Your Grown Children. The second is How to Deal... Uh, what what makes siblings close and not close in adulthood? Did you find any answers? They love us, but they don't have time for us. I interviewed about 70 people for that book. And with every grown child I interviewed, the conversation began, I just love my parents. I was surprised. 
And they would say, I'm grateful to them for their sacrifice. If they had children, they said, now that I have children, I realize how hard it was to raise me. And, uh, and then I'd say, well, how are you doing? And they'd say, we're not speaking. And it was, it, or, or, or it's very strained in many cases. And it turned out that this wellspring of love had gone underground. I felt I was in Texas with the oil under the shale. And, um, over to, and one of the reasons why they, this is the case is because people in their 20s and 30s now are still separating from their parents. If you've had children, you know a two-year-old, no is the word. Well, when they're 22, it's no answer. My favorite story about this happened when my son Josh was running the campaign of Chuck Schumer, his first campaign for the Senate. Josh was 28. I knew he was busy. Um, so I figured, I, so I called once, no answer, twice, no answer. He's running a campaign. Third time, I don't know. Fourth time, I was really annoyed. So I left the following message. <laughs> Hi, Josh, this is mom. If you don't call me back today, I'm voting for Al D'Amato. <laughs> Did he call you back? You bet. <laughs> He'd do anything for a vote. Well, but we, we talk about in the UK, don't you have the same thing over here about the empty nests? In yes. Them, where, the, where the woman has been very busy working, balancing home life, bringing up kids, and, you know, going to just be doing multitasking. And then she wakes up one day and she can no longer define herself as this very busy person balancing work and home because guess what? There's no one at home to, to, to organize. Yes, I, I have experienced that. When the youngest goes to college, all of a sudden there are the, these big silences. Very often marriages that are on the rocks break up then, mine did. And one of the wonderful things about being alive is that you have to change. So if you, if you miss rushing home and making dinner for the high school kids, consider rushing to the gym. There are so many things that we can fill our lives with. And we get to, as we get older, the opportunities increase. Well, we're living longer. Yeah. You know, so like 60s, like the new 40, isn't it? That's right. I mean, this is, I mean, the word retirement, how do you view the word retirement? I have no idea. (laughs) What does it mean? I think it means, (laughs) I think it means 30 years ago, you worked for a company that took such good care of you that when you retired at 65, you could live, you could go and play golf somewhere. And you didn't need to be near the grandchildren because in that era, families weren't that close. So what you're saying then is as we, as we, as we get older, we need to be rushing home for ourselves. That's right. And, and self, self-improvement, you know, because, I mean, I don't know about you, but it certainly is a, as a, being a woman on TV, I always had to go to the gym. I always had to look after yes. myself. I always had to have massage. And then my son got to a certain age and I had much more time. Yeah. I had more massage. So what, what do we do as older women then in terms of our personal lives? What do we fill it with so that we don't feel completely self-indulgent and well, narcissistic? Good works. Um, I, I'm turning 80 in August and my 10-year-old granddaughter a couple of weeks ago we're all going to, I'm taking them all to Montana. There'll be nine of us. I don't want to tell you what it costs. Um, and she said, Grandma, now that you're reaching, nearing death. Did she say that yeah. to you? <laughs> um, how, has, how has your age changed how you think about life? That's a good question a from your granddaughter. Question. Great question. I'm bragging. Yeah. But, um, and, I, and I said, you know, I have been thinking about that a lot. Because when I turned 79, that started my 80th year. It was, that's how I think, anyway. 
and I thought a lot about it. What, what can I do best in the years that are given me? Now, that's a question that goes into 40-point boldface when you reach 80. It's a question you could also ask yourself in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Yeah, of course. So I, and I thought a lot about it, and I decided I could play as much solitaire on my iPad as I like. But I also decided that I needed to set some, make sure that how I spent my, the rest of my time met my values. So I'm, in, I'm on boards, I'm engaged, I, I, I do a lot of, I, I, as a book editor, I'm always in demand to give free readings and free advice. I do a tremendous amount of that. I've edited books, freelance. I had This year I had two bestsellers. That's amazing. Who, who were they? Well, I, Rebecca Traster, Good and Mad, a, a book I recommend strongly, and Mary Pfeiffer's Women Rowing North. I never, as an editor, had two bestsellers. And as, as an author, I never had any bestsellers. So there you are. The world has a way of filling up if you are open, if you are interested, and if you are ready to be connected. I think a lot of people, a lot of women who, and I'm a widow, so it's me and my dog. I walk my dog. But we have to figure out ways to be, we have to be open yeah. to opportunities. We have to see where we, each of us individually, can be of use. Um, and the same Ruby, when she was seven, uh, it was the presidential election. And her father had taken her brother to spring training, and he asked what Ruby would like to do, especially with her dad. And she said, I'd like to volunteer for Hillary. Um, and Josh is connected, so off she went to Brooklyn to Hillary headquarters. And I have a picture of her with her phone on her shoulder and she, they were trying to get people to register uh, for Democratic Party in Nebraska. And Josh said, if somebody answers, because most people hang up, Josh said, Ruby, if somebody answers, say, hello, my name is Ruby and I'm seven years old. Aww. So they didn't hang up. Oh, that's really lovely. And, and she, she, was very, she was very sad. But it's also a lesson to learn that you can work and work and work and not get what you want, which is something that kids can learn as well as grown-ups. Yeah, that tenacity sadly doesn't always pay off. Doesn't always pay off. little bit about you as an editor because yeah. I think you're you're incredibly modest and that's kind of an understatement I mean you were a, an editor for over uh, four decades how was it to watch talent pass underneath your eyes and how did you spot talent and where did you get the the skill to actually edit books from where did anyone teach you that or is no. it just a natural talent it's a chip Okay. Some people have a chip in their brain you have an editor chip I do yeah and um, I have a cousin who edits video She's got the video chip, and my son David edits audio. It's the same chip. You can see the whole thing and know what to do with it. But what, I was always a reader. I was a kid. I was the girl who tied my shoes reading a book. So books were what I loved. I also found college stultifying because you had it was too rigid. And I dropped out of graduate school because I couldn't imagine studying philosophy for the rest of my life. It was, yeah. it was too narrow. 
So I got my first day at Harcourt. I was first reader. I read all the unsolicited manuscripts. And in the day, when you would open the box, these were not Xeroxes. These were uh, carbons that had been opened and shut many times. You could smell the smell of old paper. So you knew that they had been sent yeah. around. And I loved it. As a, as a kid, my parents were first-nighters in the theater. So I got to go to theater um, and have an opinion before the reviews came out. I thought that Fiddler on the Roof, for instance, would never work because it was too vulgar. Uh, vulgarization of Shalom Aleichem. That was how good my judgment was. But I knew what I thought before anybody told me. That was my training for an editor. So what, what do you look for in a writer? It's the way... I, I've only done nonfiction. I spent 15 years at the Yale University Press editing scholars. So, so uh, good writing was not at a premium. Clarity for hard books, clarity is a premium. Right. Um, for, and for me, something happens, and it's about the ideas. So when, for instance, I... I got uh, Reviving Ophelia, the manuscript. It, it was a proposal. I was 13th person to get that manuscript, that proposal. And um, I just, I knew, because I knew a lot about child psychology, I knew that she had something different to say. It was new. There were other books that I had seen, proposals about teenage girls coming from Ms. Magazine, coming from famous people, and this quiet psychologist in Lincoln, Nebraska, knew something nobody knew. So I took it to my people, and, I, and they said, well, what about this? They didn't know psychology. I said, this is different. And we paid a small advance, and we worked together for a year or so until it was right. And then it became a great hit um, because she knew something. And what we, she was saying was, don't blame the family anymore. Blame the culture. She yeah, was thank of, goodness. I mean, how, I mean, how fed up are you hearing blame the mother and father? It's like, take some responsibility for yes, your life yes. for already. Right. And I had been publishing all these Freudians who were blaming mama for everything. Yeah, everything. So, and, and so it was like that. In other cases, um, sometimes it's the idea. For instance, when Buzzy Bissinger decided he thought it would be a good idea to go to, to Texas to follow a football team, we thought maybe we could sell 20,000 copies of the book in Texas, and that would suffice. And it turned out that Friday Night Lights is a book, it's a book about football, but it's really a book about race, and it's really a book about the exploitation of athletes. And when, <laughs> at the 25th anniversary, there was a, reading of, the, of a 25th edition, 25th anniversary edition. And Buzzy said, Jane, it was such an advantage that you didn't know anything about football. <laughs> Do you have to like the writer? It's harder to work with a writer you don't like. It's worse to work with a book you don't like. Right. When, when I was at running basic books, basic was psychology and politics, and we did a lot of right-wing books, which I don't agree with. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe there are sales there. So I published a, a, a book on education by a right-wing her, and I couldn't help her. I thought it was all terrible. <laughs> Just put it in the bin. Yeah, and it came out, it was okay. But the, the relationship between author and editor, it's partly, it's partly logic, get the logic of the book right. It's partly language, get the language clear. But the relationships that last are about 
spirit. So as an editor, you published books on psychology and neurology. What yeah. was the turning point for you that you needed to write about some of those issues yourself? That's a very good question. The reason I decided to write was because I couldn't get anybody to write the book I wanted. So you have felt you had something to say that hadn't been said. That's right. My mother was a psychologist. She wrote an advice column for the New York Post, and I hated the columns. So I was never going to give advice that way. What I, was, what I meant to do with these books and what I have done with these books is to explore, to interview people, to learn from them, to find, gather what I can, the wisdom, how I can, the wisdom of people who are in the same circumstances as what I'm studying. And then I, I do have my own ideas. But um, it's really, I'm trying to help people solve their own problems. You wrote, I see myself as a map maker, sketching out the routes to conflict and acceptance, to anger and to love. Yeah. Do you still see yourself that way? Yes. And I'm a happier map, map maker than I was when I said that. When you say map maker, do you, how do you mean you're I mean, a map Google, maker? I mean Google Maps. Right. So you're designing your own life? No, I'm maker. looking at, I'm studying the terrain. Right. Those, those maps where you can see the ups and downs, the rivers, it's blue, it's different color as, as, the, as the mountain goes higher. Yeah. I think that every family is its own terrain. Uh, and we need to be able, we need to accept, we need to learn, and we need to figure out the path to love, to acceptance, um, so that's the map version. My other image is a kaleidoscope. You know, it's a wonderful kaleidoscope, and then you you think everything's fine with the family, it's all settled, and then you move the kaleidoscope five degrees and everything's different. There's just no way that things stay the same. Well, let's talk about your other book, Secret yeah. and Lies, where the terrain really did get a little bit unpredictable yes, and a little bit did. rocky. Can you tell us a little bit about that for those who haven't heard of the book? Oh, sure. Um, I married a wonderful man. Tall, dark, handsome, a psychoanalyst, which pleased my family because they, everybody was in the business. And um, 15 years into our marriage, we were at, I was publishing The Psychoanalyst, and he was a leading young analyst, Freudian. 15 years into our marriage, he, we were at a meeting in a hotel in San Francisco, and he came out to me and told me he was homosexual. And that moment, imagine yourself driving a car at a stop sign. And somebody walking across the street has a bat and smashes your windshield. That's what happened to my life. Yeah. And uh, we stayed married for nine more years. The kids were small. We kept it a secret. Then we didn't keep it a secret. It was all of the things that are engaged and involved in a surprise and a secret. sad, I was lonely, I was angry. I loved Dick. He loved me. We had these children to raise. I had work. I'll tell you what did it. It was work. <laughs> it was work, yeah. Because I have the ability, and again, it's a chip, to put my troubles on a back burner. During this time, I decided I wanted to learn class, uh, 
biblical Hebrew. That's a very hard language. So I would sit on the chaise when Dick was with his lover, whom he eventually married, two nights a week. And I would study Hebrew grammar and listen to Bach. That was enough. I didn't like it. And I was unhappy and angry. Why did you decide the pair of you and Dick to keep it from the children? They were too young. To understand, yeah. They were eight and 12. And, and Dick was very good about this. Uh, he had come from a difficult family. So when the kids were small, he gave me complete control. I'm turning, giving you the baton. And so he said, we'll tell them when you think we should tell them. And At what age were they when you well, told them? Well, we told them because the, our older son, David, found out. And then when Josh came home for Christmas vacation, we told him. And this is a poignant story about this. So David knew that we were telling Josh. And David lived in the village. He called him and said, how are you doing? Josh said, okay. And he said, well, you want to come down and we can talk about it. And Josh said, I don't want to leave the house now because I don't want dad to think I don't love him. Oh, that's so lovely. That's so touching, isn't it? It's touching. 20 years later, I asked him, how did you have, what a wonderful person you are. What was your thinking? He said, I didn't want to lose my father. So you see both. Yeah. And that is... I, I don't want to, I, I love him, I don't want to lose him. This is true of the people we love, whatever they do, of whoever course, they are. Of course. What do you think about the, the uh, I mean, I as I've got older and I've hopefully gained a little more, more, more wisdom, I think there's a time and a place for lying. Yes. Because it's about protecting someone else's story and their privacy. Do you agree? I agree completely. I don't, I think telling other people's secrets ought to be on the 11th commandment, do not tell other people It's secrets. like a betrayal. It is. If, if I have a secret about a family member that I could very easily share and it would be destructive, then why would I share it? it that is, I agree with you completely. If you have a secret that you're keeping from people, one, you, you need to make a calculation. What harm is that secret doing me Yeah. in my relationships? Keep a secret. You can't be close to people. Yeah. Because the subject comes up, something around it, and you have to change the subject. Yeah. Um, that's one. And then the other calculation is how much will they hate me when they find out? Or hate the person that you're going to reveal the truth about. I think but, you yeah. should absolutely not tell another person's secret. It's a betrayal, and it's not yours to do. I think it's a very interesting area, the, the, the line between lying and, and oh. privacy. And what is what is one person's dishonesty is, is another's person. I'm just not telling you all the details. Yes. And when when this all came out about Dick, one of my closest friends I'd kept it from for years, and she was hurt. She said, I thought we were friends. And what I didn't tell her, because I didn't want to hurt her feelings, is I thought she'd say, get rid of him immediately. And I didn't want anybody's judgment about no, how to live you my loved, life. You loved him. I loved him. Yeah, of course. Now, you, you've said that uh, you've got now much more time for the mm-hmm. grandchildren. Yeah. When you look back, because you obviously you said you, you kind of got through this uh, challenging terrain by throwing yourself into work. If you look back on your, your work-life balance, would you have done things differently? And what would you be saying to your little Ruby when she has her <laughs> children? You know, it's a very good question. My late husband, their father, always said that the fact that I worked was much to the children's benefit. If I hadn't had work, Susan, I would have died. I love children, but on a long weekend, by a, a Monday, by Monday noon, I'd be hitting my watch because I thought it had stopped. <laughs> 
I'm sure there's so many women listening to this who are going to be rolling about laughing like me. Yes, and, and, and it's, here's a story, a, re, an, a recent story. So I was writing this grandparent book, and I was visiting my kids in the country, and they said, oh, Grandma, we're having such a good time, stay over. And I didn't. I said, I have to be back at my desk. And I felt terrible about it. How often does a child say, stay? How often? Does, and I, but I had to do my work. The next morning, I woke up to a text from my son saying, uh, we were at breakfast this morning talking about how proud we are of your determination. Yeah. So, you know, that's the way it is. Jane, I have to ask you, do you think as women, we, it's inevitable that we, be, we lose our power as we age? I am, I am invisible on Madison Avenue. That's fine with me. Last week, a teenager cut in front of me in line and I said, excuse me. And she said, I didn't see you. And I said to her, do you have a grandmother? <laughs> she said, yes. I said, this happens to her all the time. We have courage. It doesn't matter anymore. As you get older, you can say to yourself, I've lived this long. I don't have to put up with friends, false friends. I don't have to go do things that I don't enjoy. And I can, I can take my strength and I can use it for what's important to me. And the image of youth, that you have to be young and beautiful, is still true. But there is a movement, and the success of Women Rowing North, Mary Piper's new book, is an example of it. There is so much power when you're no longer being prey to sexual harassment so that you don't have to watch out as much. You may have to watch out that you'll fall on the sidewalk. <laughs> Did you have much of that when you were growing up as a young woman? I was at Yale for 15 years, and I don't want to bore you with what it was like to be a woman in that sexist university. It was infuriating, and you had to work twice as hard to be thought to be a, a, a human. So I, and I've seen it again and again, the hostile work environment, the people who sustain that, the power that is held in the corporation or the university, that's the problem that we really need to work on. So if you were going to sum up any advice you'd give to a younger woman, yeah. uh, what, what would that advice be? Strive for the impossible. Here's another story. So Benji was asking, I was ha we were having lunch with Ruby and her older brother, and he said, if you could... It, if you had one day in which you could be anything you wanted in the world, and then the next day you'd be back to yourself, what would you be? So I said I'd play in a string quartet. Ruby said I'd play in the NBA. I said the WNBA. She said, no, Grandma, I mean the NBA. That's what I would tell young women. Jane Issa, you've certainly been there, done that. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Been There, Done That with me, Susan Osman. Visit us on btdtshow.com for more interviews with dynamic women. And I'd love to hear from you as well, so please leave us a review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. These are words of respect. How can you tell when you're really in love? And look how flaky it is. The girls weigh each portion of food they select. 
the Been There, Done That show is brought to you by Dan Hall at Pup Media Consultancy. We can still have a lot of fun, can't we? Your manners are showing. Ladies, would you each check the inside of your washer? To- Overweight makes an individual undesirable. Kind of a mess, wouldn't you, Mr. Strayer? Beautiful. And you think that's all that matters?